Hey, yep. Glory adios, everybody. It's Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost Sunday weekend. And uh, that's a big deal for apostolics. I know we don't maybe get all the, the hype that Easter gets, but Pentecost Sunday is a big deal. And, and with that, I want to look at a few things. I want to go back to an old, old article from RyanAFrench.com called Fiery Evangelism. And we're going to look at some things that Elijah can teach us about revival today. And also, oh, let me see here what I have for us. I want to talk to you uh, about the Holy Ghost. So we're going to talk about some misunderstandings regarding the Holy Ghost. And we're going to answer some of those common questions, common misunderstandings. And, uh, and as a special bonus, I want to talk about three of the most common stumbling blocks that keep people from receiving the Holy Ghost. Three of the most common stumbling blocks that keep people from receiving the Holy Ghost that I've found in, in my ministry, praying with people and working the altars with people. And uh, I'd love, I'd love, by the way, if you're listening and you have a thought, maybe you're an altar worker or someone who really has a passion and burden for praying people through to the Holy Ghost. I'd love it if you'd call in, write, uh, reach out in some way and give us some uh, some encouragement or some words of advice, just something that has been effective for you that you uh, utilize and is meaningful that would be a help to the rest of us. If you've got something like that, don't keep it to yourself. Share it because our churches desperately need to be in the altars, working in the altars, seeing the fire of the Holy Ghost fall in the altars. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today, the fire of the Holy Ghost and how we desperately need it. Uh, it doesn't take many generations for even Pentecostals to lose the flame, the fire, the burden, the passion. And it's our responsibility. It's our God-given directive. It's our privilege to maintain the fire of the Holy Ghost and to cultivate an environment, an atmosphere where God's spirit will be prevalent where it will move in a powerful way in our midst. That's what we need as a people. That's what we need as a movement is the fire of the Holy Ghost to purge us, cleanse us, fill us, change us, regenerate us. And that's that's going to be the thrust of our conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. As always, you can go to ryanafrench.com and get all of the notes and everything you need to stay in touch and up to date with what we're doing here. Thank you for listening and supporting. God bless you. receive the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues before you can be saved and this is what's so beautiful about it it all comes together just as God confounded the nation's tongues at Babel and he confused them and separated them because of their rebellion and unrighteousness God reunited all the nations of the world by giving them one tongue the language of heaven the out oh, I feel the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. God pulled all the nations together. I may not know your native tongue, but I know the language of
language of the Spirit. I may not speak the language you first learned, but we speak the same language of the Holy Ghost. And when we come together as God's people, we may not have the same language, we may not have the same skin tone, but we serve the same God. We have one kingdom. We have one hope. We have one future. We have one redemption. We have one baptism. We have one faith. We have one Lord. Their wickedness caused a separation. Their wickedness caused a disunity that was literally God-ordained. God said, I'm not going to let them stay together because when they get together, they do all kinds of unrighteous things. When they get together, they're unstoppable in their evil. And so I'm going to push them apart by confounding their language. But in the last days, God looks at people who are called out and he says, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to bring them together with righteousness and I'm going to put their language together they may not speak the same earthly tongue but I'm going to give them the tongue of angels I'm going to give them a heavenly language and their righteousness is going to unite them their holiness is going to unite them their separatedness is going to unite them I don't care if they're from Africa I don't care if they're from Asia I don't care if they're from North America or South America they're going to walk in one tongue the language of heaven they're going to be separated and called out they're going to be a holy people a righteous people and everything that caused humankind to be separated in the first place is going to draw them together but not in an earthly nation you see that's the problem they kept expecting jesus to set up an earthly kingdom jesus reminded them over and over again my kingdom is not of this world back thank you so much for joining us happy pentecost sunday weekend i pray that your church is on fire i pray that you're on fire with the power of the holy ghost operating manifesting in your life i pray you're walking in the spirit praying in the spirit living in the spirit i pray that you have passion like never before and i want to start by by answering some common questions that i receive and probably many of you receive or maybe you're asking these questions there's a lot of misunderstandings about the Holy Ghost and tongue talkers, Pentecostals, apostolics, whatever verbiage you want to use. In fact, I remember years ago, I went into <laughs> a country western type store. I can't remember what it was called, but I wanted to buy a pair of American made boots, cowboy boots, the real deal. I was ready to spend some money and there was a lady there and she was very nice. She came over trying to help me. And first of all, I was totally shocked because I did not realize that you can spend, you know, $2,000 on a pair of boots. So that was a little startling. But she's showing me the boots and she said, hey, are you a preacher? And it kind of came out in conversation. I said, yes, I pastor Apostolic Tabernacle, 9769 Terra Boulevard, Jonesboro Road. And she said, oh, wait, what kind of church is that? I said, well, we're a Pentecostal church. And 
And all of a sudden, she'd been very friendly, but her demeanor changed. I could tell she was visibly shaken. And she went from being very friendly to kind of like, whoa, she was standing back, didn't want to get too near. I felt like I had leprosy or something. And I said, are you okay? I said, are you familiar with what Pentecostals are? And it took her a minute because I could tell she didn't want to be offensive, but she said, y'all are the people who handle snakes, aren't you? And I said, and now if you know anything about me, you know that Ryan hates snakes. I mean, there's almost, there's almost nothing in this world that I dislike more than snakes. So there ain't going to be no snake handling in any church near me. I can promise you that right now. But this is a common misconception that Sometimes I think other denominations purposely stereotype or or purposely portray us in that light. It's kind of a pejorative way of speaking about us. And and so some people really do have this stereotype, this misconception in their minds that all Pentecostals or even most Pentecostals are crazy, tongue-talking, snake-handling weirdos which is actually not the case, not even close to the case. In fact, if if you really want to look into it, you can find that every denomination has had their weird little sect of snake handlers out there that are playing games and doing weird weirdo stuff. And so it's our job as apostolics, as salt and light, as witnesses of the power of the gospel, it's our job, it's our calling, it's the Great Commission, it's our mandate, to reach the world, preach the gospel. What does this mean literally? I know sometimes we kind of sensationalize preaching the gospel and we categorize it as just the act of a preacher being in a pulpit, preaching to a crowd of people. And I know that's real and that's true, but that is not, that's not even really the vast majority of what witnessing and preaching the gospel is. The vast majority of preaching the gospel is our personal witness where we preach to someone in a one-on-one setting or maybe a, you know, a one-on-three setting around a coffee table at a country western boot store somewhere, uh, at school, on campus, wherever it is. We're preaching the gospel in those environments. That's why the Bible tells us that we've always got to be ready to give account. We've always got to be instant or prepared to answer the questions that come our direction. And because there's so much misinformation out there about tongue talking in particular, we have to be very patient and careful to give good answers, thoughtful answers, helpful answers to people uh, who want to know. And by the way, one of the it's an advantage if you view it as an advantage. If you if you look at being an apostolic or a Pentecostal as some kind of second class citizenry or or you feel intimidated by other denominations or people of other faiths and and you feel inferior in some way, well, you're gonna have a real hard time evangelizing and and you have a problem in your spirit that you need to overcome. Uh, This is why Paul said things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We can't be ashamed of who we are because who we are is what God called us to be. If we're ashamed of who we are, then we're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of God himself. And we can't be that way as Christians. So we have to be ready. 
We have to understand that what we have is powerful, but we have this built-in advantage that we are so countercultural. We're so unique in the culture, even in the quote-unquote mainstream Christian culture, which has moved so far away from what Christianity really is. I mean, if you took a mainstream Christian, a typical American Christian, and dropped them in a Book of Acts church sometime soon after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they would not even be considered remotely Christian in that environment. They would be considered as pagan as the pagans because their form, their version of Christianity is so polluted with false doctrine and paganism, by the way, which is what the Catholic Church did to the church. The paganism that came into the Catholicism, Catholicism spread that paganism and idolatry. I'm using, I know I'm using kind of inflammatory language, but I'm just being honest. It spread that idolatry into what we now call mainstream churches. And as apostolics, we're restorationists. We're going back to what Christianity was originally in the book of Acts. That's something to be proud of. And, and because we're so unique in the world today, uh, we have a great witnessing opportunity because people really are genuinely curious, especially if you're not walking around handling snakes or something. If you're doing that, you're a weirdo and people don't want to be near you. But if, if you are genuinely trying to walk in the spirit and be obedient to the word of God and you're doing it with humility and joy and understanding, people want to know what's going on in your life. And so you have this great open door. We have this awesome open door to talk to people about the Holy Ghost because people are genuinely, genuinely curious. I find this always to be true. And by the way, I've noticed a major shift. We're just talking here right now. I've noticed a major shift from my childhood and my teenage years now into my uh, adulthood, almost middle age, 38 years old, going on 40. I've noticed that when I was young, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people who thought that people who spoke in tongues were demon possessed or of the devil, inspired by the devil, something like that. But Christianity has become so wishy-washy, which is sad, but in a way, it's also helpful to Pentecostals because. People are more open to things now. They don't really know their own doctrine, so they're open to your doctrine if you can present it in a way that is understandable, logical, and thoughtful. And so this is a great, this is a great thing. So we're going to talk. Let me give you a couple misunderstandings. You've probably heard them. As I said earlier, if you're listening today, maybe you ask these questions and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. The first question that I get all the time is, have tongues ceased? Have tongues ceased? And they usually point to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. I'll just read it to you really quick. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, here's where the question comes in, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. 
When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. So the first thing you need to understand, and we're going to look at this more in depth in just a second, but Paul is talking specifically here about the gift of tongues. There are at least four manifestations of tongues, four types of tongues that operate in a Christian's life. And Paul is talking here about the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues, I'll go ahead and give you a a brief understanding of what that is. We'll go a little more in depth in a second, but maybe you're listening and you don't really know the different roles of tongue talking in the church and in a private believer's life. The gift of tongues is something that operates in the church for the edification of the body of Christ in a church service, typically, or a gathering of believers of some kind, maybe a maybe a gathering of prayer. The gift of tongues is not something that that you utilize privately. Why? Because the gift of tongues is when God speaks through someone supernaturally. They they speak in an unknown tongue. Really, that word tongue is is better translated language or languages. And this is another discussion for another day, but it can be an earthly language. It can be a heavenly language, or it can even be an earthly language that is no longer in existence. There are over 9,000 earthly languages even now, and thousands of dead languages that we've lost that people don't even know anymore or have access to any longer. So it can be one of those languages, but the, uh, the important thing is that it's a it's an inspired tongue from God. And then the Bible says that in that corporate church setting, there will be an interpreter, an interpretation of those tongues. And so someone will interpret what God spoke through the other individual in an unknown language. Someone will interpret that, and that will be from God. There are quite a few rules and restrictions that the Apostle Paul gave us so that we don't get out of order and it doesn't become uh, just an environment where it's a free-for-all. And that's another discussion for another day. But this is what Paul was talking specifically about. But Paul was not saying that tongues have ceased today. See, what, what our Baptist friends typically say is that Paul was referring to the canon of Scripture. So Paul was saying essentially that once the Word of God, the Bible, is is fully formed and the canon is completed, what we now call the Bible, uh, there will no longer be a need for tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. However, this is this is fundamentally untrue. Number one, nowhere in the text does it have anything to say about the canon of Scripture, the Word of God, the completion of the Word of God. And Paul is clearly speaking in terms of the last days. You know, you have all this terminology. He says it it shall cease. You have a few key words, the word then. So these are future tense words. And, and the event that Paul speaks of 
is when we see Jesus face to face, this is a future event in the coming age. This is talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't seen Jesus face to face yet. You haven't seen Jesus face to face yet. The church hasn't seen Jesus face to face yet. We still long and look for that day. So clearly Paul was talking about a a very futuristic event that still has not occurred. So tongues have not ceased. They will. Prophecy will cease. When the Lord comes back and raptures his church and brings us home, uh, there won't be any need for prophecy and there won't be any need for, for tongues and interpretation. But it's still for the edification of the church today. Now, having said all of that, I want to give you the four manifestations. Manifestations, I know, is kind of a big, bulky word, but maybe we could use the word types. The four ways that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, remember, you can use the word Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit interchangeably. It's the same thing. The Holy Ghost is is something that operates in a believer's life, in the life of a church, and there are four ways that it does so. Let me read 1 Corinthians 12, 30 through 31 to you. It says this, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues? So here Paul's asking kind of a similar question. Does everyone have the gift of healing? Does everyone speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Do, does everyone interpret tongues? And then he kind of stops and pivots and he says this, but covet earnestly, desire earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So here's the question that people ask, are tongues for everyone? You might say, okay, I, I see, Ryan, that tongues haven't ceased. Tongues still operate today. But does everyone need to speak with tongues? And the scripture I just read to you is usually one of the scriptures they turn to, do all speak with tongues, kind of that rhetorical question. Paul is clearly saying not everyone speaks with tongues. Again, you have to understand the reason Paul uses this terminology is because he is talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Ghost where there is tongues that go forth publicly in a church service and that tongue is interpreted by someone else. He says it clearly, the gift of healing, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation. Certainly, every Christian does not have the gift of healing. Every Christian does not have the gift of tongues where they speak tongues out in a service and someone translates it or interprets it. Not every Christian has the gift of interpretation either. Those are gifts that God gives people along with other gifts. For example, the gift of discernment and things of that nature. But Paul does go on to say that even though everyone doesn't have these gifts, everyone should desire these gifts. In fact, he said you should earnestly desire these gifts. In other words, this is something that you should long for. You should pray for it. You should seek after it. It's not something you just say, well, it's not my gifting, so I guess someone... No, as a Christian, as an apostolic, you're supposed to seek after these gifts. These are the best gifts. And we long for them. Now, we may not have them, but we but we long for them. This is why there's a lot of confusion about the question of, okay, tongues, you know, some people speak in tongues, but does every Christian need to speak in tongues? Paul is not saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 30 and 31 that all Christians do not need to speak in tongues. And here's why. Because the first manifestation or the first way that the Holy Ghost 
operates in our lives is what I sometimes refer to as the first evidence of spirit infilling. I have lots of scriptures. You can go to ryanafrench.com and I'll have these scriptures posted for you. The most common one is Acts 2.4, Acts 2.38, Acts 4.31, uh, Acts 8, 15 through 17, Acts 9, 17, we could go on and on. There's so many passages of scripture that show us and reveal to us that when people were saved at the moment of salvation, they received the Holy Ghost and they spoke in other tongues. They spoke in a language that they did not previously know. We often call this the evidence or the fruit. It's the first symbol that someone has received the Spirit of God, that God dwells inside of them now. This is an amazing and a powerful experience. And every believer in the book of Acts and every early Christian repented of their sins, was baptized in Jesus' name, and received the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. This is the evidence. I'm personally glad that God gave us an evidence. Uh, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to ask. Why would people want to wonder if someone had received the Holy Ghost? We know because God does something miraculous and supernatural in that moment. He, he moves upon them. He fills them and they begin to speak supernaturally as the Spirit gives the utterance. What an amazing experience. I received the Holy Ghost when I was seven years old. And I know you say, well, you were very young. Yes, I was. And I didn't stay full of the Holy Ghost my entire life from the moment I was seven until right now. But that moment was life-changing, and I'm thankful that God filled me with His Spirit. Everyone who is saved, everyone who wants to be obedient to the gospel must speak in other tongues. This is essential. So every believer will and should and must, using a lot of qualifiers here, speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Now, Speaking in other tongues is only the first evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. We know that as you continue in your relationship with God, as you walk in the Spirit, as Paul says over and over again, other things begin to manifest. You, you start manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness. All of these things start growing in the soil of your life. You walk in the newness of life. And so you walk and grow in sanctification. What does that mean? You become holy. Sanctification is just the process of becoming holy. What is the process of be becoming holy? It's the process of becoming more and more like the Lord. And so that's why old timers say things like, I don't walk like I used to walk. I don't talk like I used to talk. I don't dress like I used to dress. I don't go the places I used to go. Why? Because what they're describing is they were filled with the Spirit of God. The fire of the Holy Ghost got inside of them, like the prophet Jeremiah said, like fire shut up in their bones. And that fire of the Holy Ghost began to purge them from the inside out. You say, well, yeah, holiness people are all hypocrites. Well, some are, but true people who walk in holiness, they have a fire of the Holy Ghost that purges them on the inside, and then it changes them on the outside. It doesn't change them from the outside in. It changes them from the inside out. That's what the Holy Ghost does. Anything that we do without the Holy Ghost is legalism because we're changing from the outside in. But when we have the Spirit of God, now we're being purged from the inside. And so we start looking at outward things differently. We, we look at 
jewelry, for example, and realize, okay, the Word of God says uh, that that I'm not going to decorate myself with silver and gold. And so uh, we feel convicted from the inside and we remove that from our lives. It's not something that we do legalistically. It's not something that we do arrogantly. It's something that we do with humility under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But the first evidence, the first evidence is going to be speaking in other tongues. The second manifestation of the Holy Ghost is the one that we have been talking about previously. It's a gift of the Spirit for the edification of the church. Typically, if you've never experienced this, typically it happens in a church service. In every situation that I have been blessed to be involved in, it seems as if there is a holy hush. It's the only way I know how to describe it. It's like it's like God just settles everyone down. Even the babies get quiet. Everything just gets unnaturally, or maybe I should say supernaturally calm and quiet. There's a peace in the spirit that you feel. And someone will begin to speak forth loudly in tongues in a language that no one knows in that setting. They speak it loudly. Uh, you can tell that they're under the under the unction and the power of God. And then usually there's a, a pause. They stop. They don't just do that forever and ever. They pause and they stop. And everyone will remain very uh, solemn in that moment, prayerful. We all seek our heart. I always ask the Lord, "Do you have? We, are you going to give me the interpretation, Lord? And usually uh, someone will begin to speak after a few seconds or maybe a minute or two. Someone will begin to speak out the interpretation of whatever that tongues was. And it will be edifying. This is very important. It will always be edifying for the body. If someone is speaking something that is contrary to the word of God or that is derogatory to the, the things of God, you immediately know that person is not in the spirit. They're in the flesh. Now, I've never seen that happen, but I'm sure that it has happened. It'd be an area where someone could abuse the gifts of the Spirit. Every gift of the Spirit can be abused. The gift of healing can be abused. Shysters do it every single day. Uh, the gift of tongues can be abused. The gift of interpretation can be abused. That's why we have shepherds and pastors to help to help guide these things. But if you've ever experienced a genuine tongues and interpretation, it's incredibly powerful. Not everyone has this gift. We should seek after it, as we've already said. Number three, there's a third manifestation of tongues that happens in a believer's life. And this is the most common one. And it, you can find, I'm not going to read it because we're running out of time, but you can find it in 1 Corinthians 14, 2 through 4, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and Jude uh, 20, Jude verse 20. Remember, Jude is only one chapter. So Jude, technically chapter one, verse 20. And it's what I call personal prayer and edification. And this is where you're praying, you're worshiping, you're praising, whether it's in your prayer closet or at church or in your car or wherever you are, you begin to speak in tongues as you pray and worship the Lord. Every Pentecostal is familiar with this because if you've ever been in a church service, it happens. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting, it happens. And it's, it's very refreshing for you. Now this, what the Bible teaches is about this, this kind of tongue talking is for your personal edification. It's not for the people around you. It's not for the church. It's not for anyone else. This is for you. Uh, it's God 
ministering to you, refreshing you, and perhaps you're praying and God begins to move on you. If you pray in tongues, if you've ever been in prayer where you step into speaking in tongues, it's just another level of walking in the spirit. It's another level of intimacy in your relationship with God. Everyone should long for this. Everyone should long for this. Every believer should have this. Now, I understand not every believer is going to be as sensitive to it as others are. Not everyone is going to speak in tongues every time they pray. Not every Christian is going to speak in tongues every time they worship. Some do. Some are more sensitive. However, it should be something you seek after. Now, you don't need to feel like you're an inferior Christian if you're not speaking in tongues every other second, but you should seek after it. It's a refilling and it's it's powerful and refreshing. You might say, and here's a question that I often get from people, Ryan, I understand personal edification and speaking in tongues, but is it out of order for people to be speaking in tongues personally in a church service? And my answer is yes and no. No, it's not out of order any more than it would be if someone is singing a song, singing a hymn out loud or a worship song out loud. They're not out of order. They're participating in the worship and the praise and the prayer of the service. So speaking in tongues publicly in a church service is not out of order as long as you are not becoming disruptive to the service itself. If your personal tongues, your personal prayer and edification is becoming disruptive to the flow of the church service, then you are out of order and you are not in the will of God. Any more than if someone said, well, prayer is a good thing, so I'm gonna go, uh, I'm gonna go pray loudly for my pastor while he's preaching. I'm gonna go stand, you know, right in front of the pulpit and and pray for him loudly while he's preaching. Well, that's out of order. Prayer, are you saying prayer is bad, right? No, prayer is a good thing. You ought to pray for your pastor, but that's not the time or place. Same with tongues. If you just decide that while the preaching is going forth or uh, something like that, you're going to disrupt the whole service and stand up and do something like that and and do it in a disruptive way that draws attention to you, that would be out of order. However, an environment of praise and worship and prayer will usher people into the presence of the Lord in such a way that they will speak in other tongues. Number four, and there's a fourth, what I call manifestation of the Holy Ghost. You might could take number four and put it, smash it together with number three, personal prayer and edification that we just talked about. But I, I think it's helpful to separate it. Number four is what I call intercessory prayer. You can find this in Romans 6, 18, Romans 8, 22 through 26. You can read that for yourself. But intercessory prayer is what the Bible describes as the Spirit praying through us. It usually is accompanied with groanings. It's a deep prayer where we are burdened and we are praying for things that we don't even understand. Have you ever prayed for a loved one and you didn't even know everything happening in their lives? You just knew their life was a mess. You know, they're hiding things from you. There's things happening you don't really know, but you're so deeply burdened for them. Intercessory prayer is the kind of prayer where you're you're praying for someone in a situation that you don't really know everything about that situation, but God knows every detail of that person's life. And so as you're praying to the best of your human ability, suddenly the Spirit of God begins to pray in you and work through you. And the Spirit begins to help you pray in tongues for things that you don't even have personal knowledge of, but God has personal knowledge. 
many times I've heard stories and in my own life I've been I've been woke from a sound sleep in the middle of the night and God began to burden me to pray for someone or a situation and I didn't even know why I was praying for him God just gave me a name and said pray right now and I started praying and intercessory prayer would come upon me. And I know many of you listening have experienced this. Some of you have moms and grandmothers who who were like this and are like this. And I prayed for them in the middle of the night. The Lord just started praying through me. I had no idea why. And the next day got a call and found out that they had been in a life and death situation at that very second when God woke me up. And I didn't even know what I was praying for, but God knew what I was praying for. And so the Holy Ghost helps us. That's intercessory prayer. And this is a private prayer. This is something that we do uh, on our own. And it's not even for us. Now, we can feel edified when we do, but intercessory prayer is not technically for us because we are praying for someone else. And it's a blessing to their life. Okay, I told you I wanted to give you three common stumbling blocks that keep people from receiving the Holy Ghost. And I want to give that to you now. If you're seeking the Holy Ghost and you've never spoken in other tongues as the Spirit moved upon you, gave you the utterance, then these three stumbling blocks will be something you'll want to listen to and and take note of. If you have the Holy Ghost and you want to be able to pray with people and help them receive the Holy Ghost, and that ought to be one of your primary goals as a Christian is to help see other people receive the Holy Ghost, you want to be a part of that, then you should listen to these three things and uh, make a note of them somewhere. And this will help you as you minister with people in the altar. So the first stumbling block that I see pretty commonly is, is kind of goes without saying not believing in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So when I'm talking to someone and and uh, praying with them, one of the first things I'll ask them is, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Do you believe it's real? Do you believe it's for the church today? Essentially, all the questions that we just talked about. Do you believe that it's for the church today? Do you believe that everyone needs it? Do you believe that you need it? Commonly, if someone is you know, praying in an altar and they're not receiving the Holy Ghost, There's some form of unbelief that is gripping them. And God is not going to fill someone without faith with his spirit if they have unbelief. And so if they have unbelief, you have to stop. Don't keep trying to pray them through to the Holy Ghost because you're never going to get anywhere. It's like beating against a brick wall. If they have unbelief in their heart, you have to lovingly disciple them. You've got to If they'll let you go sit down with them somewhere, whether it's right that moment or at another time, sit down and talk them through their unbelief. Answer their questions, just like we were going through a moment ago. Uh, Listen to their questions with uh, compassion and with understanding. Answer them patiently. Answer as many questions as they have until some faith and anticipation starts growing inside of their heart. That's number one. Here's number two. This is the second most common stumbling block that keeps people from receiving the Holy Ghost. Thinking that the Holy Spirit is going to take them over, control them, force them to speak, or talk through them. This is an error. This is not what the Bible teaches. And I find that many apostolics struggle under this error. And I think sometimes our semantics, our language, the way we talk about the Holy Ghost, 
promotes this error. And we don't mean to. It's an accident, of course. But uh, we unintentionally promote a misunderstanding about what happens when we receive the Holy Ghost. If you look at the book of Acts, the Bible says that they spoke in other tongues. They spoke as the Spirit gave them the utterance. The key word here, key words, is they spoke. God is not going to take someone's mouth over. This is what people sometimes think. Well, God's going to take my tongue. He's going to take my lips. He's going to take my vocal cords. He's going to take it over and I'll have absolutely no control. This is not true. God is not going to start supernaturally moving your mouth and forcing air to come out of your lungs, through your vocal cords and and out your mouth. This isn't what God does. He gives the utterance. He gives the inspiration. He gives the words. He gives the idea. He puts them in, we might could say, your mind or in your heart. He gives you the inspiration. They're there. Sometimes people use the illustration, it's like it's bubbling up inside of you. What we mean is it's like these words are running through our heart and our mind, and they don't really make any sense to us. But you have to let those words out. This is a phrase we use in altar work a lot. Let it out, let it out, let it out. But what we mean by that, and we need to make sure we clarify this to people, is that you now have to use your voice. You have to actually move your mouth and speak intentionally the words that God is putting in your heart and in your mind. God isn't going to make you speak it. He's not going to force that sound out of your mouth. Some people think, well, if I just start saying a word like hallelujah, that as I'm saying that word, God's going to start forcing me to say other words. That's not how the Holy Ghost works. You will be speaking the words. You will be speaking the words, but the Holy Spirit will be giving you the utterance. This is important because many people don't receive the Holy Ghost because they're they're stuck in this error, this misunderstanding that God's somehow going to force them to do it. And God isn't going to do that. The third common stumbling block that I think keeps people from receiving the Holy Ghost is expecting a spectacular supernatural experience. This is a stumbling block. When I say that, I don't mean that receiving the Holy Ghost is an amazing, wonderful it's, it's an incredible feeling. Many people you talk to will share an experience that they look back on, and it really is life-changing. However, trumpets aren't going to sound. Angels aren't going to descend from the heavens. Fire isn't going to start shooting out from the ground. And sometimes we, we give this idea to people that when they receive the Holy Ghost, there's going to be earthquakes and fire and smoke and and, uh, you know, and they're going to fall on the ground and shake uncontrollably. And so they're waiting on this experience that is not necessarily going to happen to them. Now, it can happen to them. God does manifest himself or touch people in different ways. And some people respond differently. Some people are more sensitive. Some people are more reactionary to the spirit of God. I think personality plays a lot into this. But even in the Bible, you see all kinds of situations where, you know, some people fall on their face and some people stand. Uh, Some people hear God as thunder and some people hear a still small voice. When you receive the Holy Ghost, it's not always going to be an earthquake. It's not always going to be lightning bolts from heaven. It will be powerful and it will be supernatural. 
But don't think that uh, God's going to whisk you up in a chariot and, and take you out of this world. Put it in context so that you can understand what God is really trying to do in that moment. It might sound like gibberish. It might sound silly to you at first. It might sound like like kids talk. And so some people have to get over embarrassment, feeling embarrassed because they're not used to surrendering like that. I think this is one of the reasons that God God uses us in this way and and uses the gift of tongues and the outpouring of tongues because we do have to become like a child in a sense. We have to have the faith of a child. Remember Jesus said, except you have the faith like these little children. And when you receive the Holy Ghost, you really have to surrender yourself to God in a childlike way. Your faith has to be childish. Your response to God has to be childish, unashamed. And you have to speak it even when it feels silly to you. But that is the language of the Spirit. And as you do that, you grow comfortable in it. And God begins to operate and minister to you in a whole new set of ways. And for those of you who are listening who have the Holy Ghost, you know this is true. For those of you who don't, I pray, it's my sincere prayer, that you will seek after the Holy Ghost. Remember, the Bible says, seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. If you seek the Holy Ghost, you will receive it. I promise. I know commercial breaks are frustrating, but I do want to pause and let you know you can financially support this apostolic Pentecostal programming by giving as little as 99 cents a month. You can give $4.99 a month or even as much as $9.99 per month by going to www.anchor.fm forward slash apostolic voice forward slash support. Also, please consider giving this podcast five stars and a quick review on iTunes. It really helps us out in the search engines people use to find podcasts when you give us a like and a review. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your support. God bless. want your church to grow? Do you want your neighbors to be saved? Do you want your friends, your family, your loved ones? Do you want them to be saved? Chances are, if you're listening to this, you, you probably do. And witnessing, preaching, reaching out to them, that's called evangelism. And we're all called to it. Every single one of us is called to evangelism. If we're honest with ourselves, though, the vast majority of us do not engage in evangelism like we should. We just don't. We think it's the preacher's job, the pastor's job, someone else's job. Or we want to and we know it's our job, but maybe we feel intimidated or afraid or life just gets so busy. But evangelism is spreading the gospel by whatever means possible. So your Facebook can be evangelistic. Your social media 
can and should be evangelistic. I don't mean obnoxious, but evangelistic. Every interaction that you have can and should be evangelistic in some way. Again, I didn't say obnoxious, but evangelistic. Having said all of that, preaching and word of mouth, just one-on-one, person-to-person, and then preaching in a church setting or in a public setting, those are still the most effective forms of evangelism. In a world of digitization and socialization and all of these things, mass media, one-on-one and the preaching of the gospel in a live setting is still the most effective. God knew this. That's why he said uh, that, you know, how can they be saved without a preacher? God knew that word of mouth and the word of preaching would always be the most effective means of spreading the gospel. I don't know about you, but whenever I preach or teach on the subject of evangelism or talk to people about evangelism, I can feel the discomfort. If you're talking to a Christian, a fellow Christian, it's either guilt or maybe it's just, like I said earlier, just that that feeling of inadequacy, insecurity. No one likes to feel pressured or guilt-tripped into evangelism. We all know that we could and should do more to reach the people around us especially our friends and our loved ones. We know this. There are very few Christians so hardened that they don't care about lost souls. So if we care, why don't we share? See what I did there, that little rhyme? If we care, why don't we share? Anyway, immediately following the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and fire on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter one, there was a powerful force of organic evangelism that was unleashed into the world. They literally turned the world upside down with the gospel, and they did it without cell phones, blogs, podcasts, websites, television, radio, or even reliable transportation. They did it without comfortable pews. They did it without air conditioning. Wow. They didn't formulate catchy sermon series or titles that cleverly incentivized evangelism by every member of the church. They didn't give away Lamborghinis to someone who could reach a lost soul. Rather, When the Holy Ghost fire started falling, people were attracted to the warmth of the blaze. This is still true today. In a cold world, and believe me, it's a cold world, the fire of the Holy Ghost will always attract a crowd of people. Not only that, when people left the upper room, they were so full of that same Holy Ghost fire They couldn't help but spontaneously share their experience with others. That's what genuine evangelism looks and feels like. When you get out of a red hot Holy Ghost environment, you're not going to instantly become cold. That fire burns and you can reach out to people and say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If evangelism feels forced, fake, fancy, or frightening, then you most likely have lost the fire. We've all been at that place. I'm not saying that in an ugly, mean-spirited, condescending way. I've been in that place. We've all been in that place. I have seen desperate individuals, hurting families, and broken churches hungry for the fire to fall again. So what does that have to do with Elijah? We mentioned Elijah earlier, and this this whole thought process comes from the original blog post, Fiery Evangelism. What can Elijah teach us about revival today? You can find that at RyanAFrench.com. What does Elijah have to do with, with any of this? Well, 
Elijah desperately needed the fire of God to fall from heaven too. Just like our churches, our families, our world, we as individuals, we need the Holy Ghost fire to fall from heaven. His story has much to teach us, lots to teach us about how God operates. And I want to give you five things that we must do if we want the fire to fall in our lives, in our churches, in our homes, in our communities. All five are taken directly from Elijah's famous showdown on Mount Carmel. Let me read 1 Kings 18, 23 through 25 to you. Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves, one bull, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire, put no fire under and I will dress the other bullock. So put the put the sacrifice there, put the bull there, but don't put any fire under it. And lay it on the wood and call ye on the name of your gods. So all of you out there, you're cold. You need the fire. Try whatever you're going to try. Go ahead and try it. But I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first. For ye are many, call in the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. You know, sometimes you have to let people, I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but sometimes you have to let people try some stuff. It's tragic. You hate it. You don't want them to. The prophets of Baal cut themselves. They danced. They looked like idiots. They were completely foolish. Sometimes you've got to let people, they're going to try the drugs. They're going to try the sex. They're going to try the promiscuity. They're going to try money. They're going to try fame. They're going to try whatever the world is offering them. Whatever false God the word is telling them will put warmth and fire in their lives. They're going to try those things. Some people just will. It's tragic. But at some point as, as a child of God, you have to say, okay, call on your gods, look for the warmth, look for the peace, look for the fire, look for the passion, look for the joy and all of those things. But at the end of the day, I'm going to call on the one true God and we're going to see what happens. Because when you call on the one true God and you do it in the right way, fire is going to fall. And here's the first thing that we must not do, the first lesson that Elijah teaches us about receiving the fire of God. It's this, we must not settle for man-made fire. We cannot manufacture the fire of the Holy Ghost. Over and over again, we just read it, Elijah emphasized that they were to put no fire underneath the sacrifice. He knew that it was going to take God's fire to impact his culture. Many churches try to substitute heavenly fire with man-made fire, and they end up with a form of godliness that ultimately denies the power of God. This isn't always done intentionally. Many times it's an act of desperation rather than an act of rebellion, but nothing can replace the true power of the Holy Spirit. Refuse to settle for false fire, refuse to settle for manufactured fire. You can't manufacture the fire with music. You can't manufacture the fire with uh, an environment. You can't get your building beautiful enough, state of the art enough. You can't have enough interactive things. You can't have enough programs to give you the fire of God. No, it's going to take other things. We can't make the fire. There's nothing we can do to make the fire. We can prepare for it, but we can't make the fire. 
You can, you can lay the altar. You can do all of those things, but you cannot set the flame. Only God can do that. Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. First Kings 18.30. That's number two. If we want the fire of God to fall, we must repair the altars. We must repair the altars. This is powerful. Notice that Elijah didn't build an altar from scratch. He repaired an existing altar that had fallen into disrepair because of lack of use. We lose the fire when we lose sight of the significance of the altar of sacrifice and repentance. There can be no resurrection power without a cross. It's amazing how repentance warms things up in the realm of the spirit. The reason many churches, families, individuals have no warmth and no Holy Ghost fire falling in their life is because their altars are in disrepair. They have lost sight of the significance of an altar. An altar is a place of death. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of tears, but it is a place where the power begins to operate. You cannot get the fire without the altar. You will never be able to bypass the altar and have true apostolic fire. Churches and people who try to bypass the altar end up with man-made fire because the only fire they can have is fire they make themselves. In the end, it doesn't really give warmth. It doesn't really bring peace. It doesn't really purge them from the things they need to be purged from. And it ends in destruction and pain and sorrow. Repair the altars. Keep the altars ready. Keep them warm. Keep the altar watered with your tears. Keep the altar uh, embedded with your knee prints. Keep the altar as a place that you're comfortable going to. The altar should be a place that you are comfortable going to. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. This is 1 Kings 18.32. So Elijah rebuilt the altar with stones, and he did it in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. This leads us to number three. If we want the fire of God to fall, we must acknowledge the name of the Lord. Whatever we do in word and deed, it should be done in the name of Jesus because there is no other name by which we can be saved. And one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is power. The song, you know, we've sang it so much, it just seems trite now, but there is power in the name of Jesus. It will break chains. It changes our atmosphere. When you begin to call on the name of the Lord, something changes in your environment. If you've built your altar, if you've spent time repairing your altar and preparing your sacrifice and you start doing all of that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your atmosphere is going to change. And now you are properly positioned for the power of God to fall. First Kings 18.33, and Elijah put the wood in order. He cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. This is a lot of water, folks, four barrels. We're not talking little, but four big barrels. And so they did it. They dumped it all over the sacrifice. He said, do that a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran 
round about the altar and he filled the trench also. So he dug this trench all the way around the altar. And then when they poured that water, it saturated the wood, the stones, the sacrifice, and it filled the trench all the way around it. This was 12 barrels of water. Okay, this leads us to number four. If we want the Holy Ghost to fall, we must be willing to sacrifice. This is a hard one. When Elijah had them dump 12 barrels of water on the altar at the tail end of a three-year drought, remember, Elijah had prayed for the rain to stop. God shut up the heavens. All the land was in famine. Everyone was dying of thirst. And so what did Elijah do by faith? He said, I want you to go get four barrels of water, dump it on this sacrifice, waste it on this sacrifice and do it two more times. Some people probably thought he is wasting life-giving, precious life-giving water on this sacrifice. In essence, he was really saying, Lord, if we don't see fire and rain today, we're going to die. There can be no fire without tangible sacrifice, whether our money, our time, energy, our things, whatever it is. In fact, God requires everything from us. We lay our bodies down as a living sacrifice, our entertainment, our lifestyle, our clothing choices, even our choices that affect our finances. All of those things must be surrendered to God. And sometimes we do it and say, Lord, I, I, I'm filling this trench with water by faith because if the fire doesn't fall, I'm just going to die anyway. It's not worth living without your fire anyway. And when you do this, now you are positioned for miraculous fire to fall from heaven. First Kings 18, 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah, the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I've done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Number five, we must have faith in God's word. In the end, it all became a matter of faith. Either Elijah trusted the voice of God or he didn't. It's really no different with us today. We either believe in the power of the gospel or we don't. We either believe that God is still pouring out his spirit or we don't. Do we believe that God will do what he said he would do? That's the question facing our generation today.